Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. Amen. You guys may be seated. Greetings from Queen Creek, Arizona. I see you balcony Baptists up there. What's up? I really want to get a balcony when we get a building. That's a nice vibe. I like it. Good to have you guys go Phoenix Suns in case you forgot. And uh, Memphis Grizzlies, actually I'm grateful to hear you guys don't like Memphis. Is that, what, is that true? So, so go Suns. Yeah, sounds good. Um, let me rush to honor your staff. Your staff's incredible. Um, I love Pastor Brandon. It's been great to get to know you this weekend. Uh, grateful for your leadership. I've been listening to your sermons. Got saved over and over again from listening to them. Uh, but honestly, I love how you're faithful to the exposition of God's word. Appreciate you a ton. And uh, Robert, seeing it up here, he's been to Arizona a couple times with us. There you are, my man. Grateful for you. And you bought me lunch once, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, he goes twice. He says twice. The second one wasn't as good. Um, but Pastor Ricky, grateful for, for him. Um, if you guys didn't know, our team actually went with yours to Honduras last year. We are able to send a team with you guys, so thank you for being hospitable for that. And uh, also, just the Postels are just an incredible family. Uh, they've really helped us a ton. Yeah, let's, we know who the favorite is around here. And uh, I would encourage you guys to come with them to soccer camp uh, this March. I'm going to talk in this sermon how hot Arizona is, but not in March. It's beautiful in March. It's the one month of the year. Come on. No, we got like four months, which are pretty great. Um, but let me honor you. Thank you for your support, uh, for helping our church. Uh, you've supported us in so many ways for so long, um, and it means a lot. So, so you've prayed for us, and I know that you have, and I'm grateful for that. You've sent teams. Uh, you have gone yourself, but also you give. I just want to give you some, some good news for our church. We're actually moving in two weeks. The average church uh, to get a building, church plant in Phoenix, Arizona, takes around 10 to 15 years. And so we're not at a building yet. We almost ran across one this past year. And uh, long story short, it's not ours yet. Uh, but um, COVID really hit us hard. We used to meet in a movie theater, and then that shut us down, and no school would take us. And so we actually had to meet in a, another church building at, on Sunday nights for the last couple of years. And it's been tough, but God's really been able to, we've been able to persevere through that. Well, in two weeks, we're moving into a junior high. We cannot wait to smell the, the sweaty junior high boy sweat in the cafeteria. We're just so excited. And no, honestly, we are, we're so grateful. I went to school with the principal's daughter, and so we have a good relationship there. But I just want to say thank you because of your monthly donation to our church. You completely cover our kids' wing. Everything we have to rent for the kids, all the classrooms, it's, you guys pay for it. So thank you so much uh, for, for taking care of our kids. Uh, we love you for that. Um, your support helps us in so many ways. So we are in a difficult area uh, in, in the U.S. and the Southwest. 61% of Queen Creek, uh, if you were to ask them, what do you believe, they would answer with nothing. They don't believe in any religion at all. So well over half um, the conversation has to start at just the idea of belief in general. Of the 39% of those who are religious, a huge portion of them are LDS, or you may know them as Mormon. We have a lot of them in our area. I grew up, most of my friends uh, in, my, in my town were Mormon. Uh, and also we have quite a, a, a substantial amount of Catholic. Very, very little uh, Christian, evangelical Christian presence in the Southeast Valley of Phoenix. And so that's why we planted. Uh, Barna actually did a research recently, 
and it labeled Phoenix as one of the, quote, least Bible-minded cities in America. I actually believe that's one reason why we're so unreached, because even the churches that we have, we, we, we tend to forget what this Bible is all about. This Bible is about the mission of God, amen? And if we're reading this correctly, we are always living sent. And that's what I love about your church. And I'd love for us to begin in Genesis. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to end in Revelation. So, you know, it's just going to be a quick day. Just preach the whole Bible. And uh, I'd love for us to spend some time today just looking at several texts pointing to the fact that God has always been on mission. Let's pray. Father God, as we open our Bibles to Genesis, God, may we not just be hearers of the word deceiving ourselves, but may we be doers of your word. May we do it because we are empowered by your grace and your love. God, we give you our hearts today. May you soften it towards your mission. And I praise you that you've given all of us a unique way to play in the story of God. And may some of us step into it even more today. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says, amen. In one of my favorite books by Christopher Wright, it's called The Mission of God. He has the following quote. He says, the proper way for disciples of the crucified and risen Jesus to read their scriptures is messianically and missionally. Messianically. This idea is the Bible is not just a list, it's not a list of rules to save ourselves. Without Christ, hear me, we are guilty, we are filthy, and we are dead. Without Christ, we are God's enemy in bondage to corruption and alienated from the presence of God. Therefore, we need a Messiah, or some of us would call a Savior, to do what you and I could never do. And the whole Bible is pointing towards a Messiah and then pointing at the Messiah when he comes. And story after story in the Old Testament, you see people trying to pull this off without a Messiah, and it simply will not work. But we also need to read all of the Bible missionally. The Bible is not a cookbook of recipes just to make your life a little bit better. It's not just about getting you to a state of happiness. See, happiness is a beautiful byproduct of life with God. But if we come to God to get happiness, we miss out on God himself. We come to God to get God. And happiness is a beautiful blessing that comes along the way. And this includes the Old Testament. God has always been on mission. The beautiful thing about the blessing of God is he blesses us, but it's never meant to end with us. It's always intended to extend through us. And we see that all the way in Genesis. As we're looking at Genesis 12, allow me a brief overview of Genesis 1 through 11 to set up the context. Genesis 1 through 11, many scholars call it the introduction of the entire Bible. In it, you have five stories, and every story has these three themes. Number one, man's sin our corruption, how we fall short of the glory of God. Number two, you have God's judgment. And hear me, you want a God that judges sin and evil. But what are we going to do? This is the beautiful aspect of Genesis 1 through 11. The third element is the hope of redemption. Every time there is a judgment of sin, but they are pointing towards Jesus. Uh, God is pointing towards Jesus, towards a Messiah who will do what you and I can never do. Again, Genesis 1 through 11, God has a design we don't live according to that design, but then God promises to deliver us through Jesus Christ to bring us back to God's original intent, his original 
design. And so the rest of the Bible is now asking, how will God restore this broken world that is filled with sin, death, and the devil? Write this down. In the Old Testament, God so loved the world that he chose Israel. This is God's plan. You see it in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, what is he later named? Abraham, right? The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. See this this step of faith he has to take? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Look at that. I will bless you, but you do that to be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And underline this, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What's that saying? God so loved the world that he chose Israel. So this story is not just about the story of the nation of Israel. It is about every nation in the world. God's plan has always been about the nations. In the Old Testament, you see it, you, God using Israel to bless the world. And here was the primary missionary strategy, the missionary method in the Old Testament. It was come and see. So in this text, what you have is Israel is in the middle, and the plan is to be so set apart that people from around the world come to hear about this God of grace. It's called centripetal right? You take from the outside and you keep bringing it in. Ezekiel 5.5 says this. It says, this is what the Lord God says. I have set this Jerusalem in the center of the nations with countries all around her. What's the purpose here? It's to bring people in. So you see throughout the Old Testament, Gentiles like the Queen of Sheba hearing about the wisdom of King Solomon. And what does she do? She comes from far away and then praises God as she learns about who this God is. King Nebuchadnezzar came with terrible intent, but does encounter this holy living God. What about Naaman the Syrian? He is a Syrian, not a Jew, but he is saved. His flesh, he has leprosy, and he is healed, and he declares he will praise his God even on foreign soil. See, God has always been on mission. God has always been for the nations. And what about the law? The law in the Old Testament was designed for mission. What the law did was to set apart the ones who would trust in a redeemer that is not of this world. That's what the law is. We tend to forget what the law is. We tend to think as new covenant believers that the Old Testament is just, let's just skip that part. The law, I'm so sorry, those laws were so weird. They're weird without context. But the context was to live on mission and to show the world we trust in a God who saves and we cannot save ourselves. Look at Deuteronomy 4. Moses is about to, uh, well, he's not going to go in, but he is encouraging them as the people are going to enter into the promised land. Verse 5 says, look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them. For this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. 
not going to say, oh, wow, look how mean your God is. Look at all the rules you have to follow. No, it will please them. It will show a beautiful God. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that is a God near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call to him? Because we have a personal God. Verse 8, and what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you today? So the law is a beautiful thing. It falls short, saving us. That's why we need the Messiah. But it does set us up to show we need God. And it puts us on mission. Let me give you one example. One text that a lot of people misunderstand, and I honestly don't care where you land on it, uh, but Leviticus 19.28 uh, it says, that's the passage that says, do not, I'm going to say hi to the balcony folks. You know, it says, uh, do not mark yourselves or have tattoos, right? Be, for the dead, uh, for I am the Lord. What does that mean? Right? So some people think like, okay, we should never have tattoos. I'm not here to argue this, that, or the other, whatever. But here's the context of that verse, because the context was mission. In that area for the Israelites, they were tempted to get tattoos because in that area, those people would tattoo themselves for the dead. What did that mean? They would punish themselves. They would mark themselves. And they believed as marking themselves, they would actually, their ancestors would be honored by the sacrifice. And the ancestors who weren't good enough to make it into heaven, if they just punish, if you punish yourself on their behalf, they will go from purgatory to heaven. And why does God say don't do that? Right? Because God is saying, no, this is not how this works. The gospel is not you punishing yourself to get somewhere. It's about Jesus receiving the punishment so that you and I could be with him forever, right? So the law was to set us apart. We don't do life like everyone else. We put our hope in a Messiah. We are different, wholly set apart. So all the Old Testament is looking forward to Jesus, to the Messiah who will put an end to all the corruption, oppression, and heartbreak. So then John 1, Jesus comes down to the neighborhood fully God, fully man. And hear me, the mission never changes, but the method does. Write this down. In the New Testament, God so loved the world that he gave his son. So the mission is still to love the world. Now it's very much through his son. Look at uh, John 3, 16. We all know, but I also want to read the next two verses. For God loved the world in this way, He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I love this phrase, eternal life. It's actually not just referring to quantity of time, like forever and ever, but it's actually referring to equality. This is like when Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come to give you life and life in abundance. And I believe that eternity starts now when you put your faith in him. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Why? Because of our sin, right? Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So what's the missionary method? In the Old Testament, it's come and see, but in the New Testament, it's go and tell, tell, tell. I just spoke Southern. (laughs) I've been with you guys for 24 hours. Oh my. So go and tell. Okay, now, Wow. I do have family from Jackson, Tennessee. So now, so this is no longer centripetal. It's centrifugal. That's a $5 word. What that means starts here and it goes 
out more and more. We see that in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is why I have a friend like Mitch, who I went to college with. He graduated, and he lives in an unreached people group. I'm not allowed to say where he's at. But he has dedicated his entire life to understanding their language, making an alphabet, taking the Bible, interpreting it for them, and then die. Why? Because we leave the comforts of our home to go and tell more and more. This is the missionary method. Because we have to go to them. Because who else will hear? Romans 10. Paul makes this argument. Verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love this word saved. It's, it's salvific. It, it's to be salved too. It's to be healed holistically. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? You need us, right? Preachers, right? No. Verse 15. And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful, especially when you have J's on, it's even more beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So it's our joy to tell the whole world that God loved the world so much that he sent his son. And it's our privilege to share with others what Christ has done. Here's one image I like to show my church often to kind of help with theology. It's right up here on the screen by Christopher Morgan. He was my, uh, my uh, professor in college. He wrote a really great book called Christian Theology. It's a systematic theology, but it's, I think it's really written in a way that the everyday believer can read it. But there's so many ways that Christ, uh, the picture of what Christ has done, Jesus is our ultimate substitute, right? You and I, we have a need. We need to share the world that they feel the need too, and we are guilty, What are we going to do? We have guilt and condemnation and shame for what we have done. And we know there is a price to pay. And the beautiful thing is Christ is our substitute. And he pays the penalty on the cross in our place. And as a result, you and I have justification. Which means we are, it's just as if we have never sinned. We are perfect in the eyes of God. Also, Jesus is our victory. Friends, you and I have this thing called foes or enemies. Particularly sin. Satan and death itself. And so you and I, we have been fighting and trying and your neighbors are doing all they can to beat the enemy. But this enemy wins every time except there is a champion who defeated our enemies and rose again on the third day to give you and I victory and his name is Jesus. I'm trying to preach here. Jesus, he's our sacrifice. It's what the Old Testament is pointing to because you and I are filthy. We feel it even within our conscience because of what we've done and what's been done to us. And so we need a priest to offer sacrifices, but the priests in the Old Testament, they have to do it year after year, but the book of Hebrews says, oh, Jesus, he's our great high priest. He only had to do it once because he offered himself. And being fully God, fully man, it was more than enough. And so you and I are purified. Man, we need restoration. Man, outside of Jesus, death is the end of our story. Because of the first Adam, he done there, messed it all up. Sinned and introduced death and separation. Paul says, but we got a second Adam. And this Adam did a way better job. He obeyed. And he has given us life. We need redemption. You and I are in bondage. We're in bondage to sin. Don't you feel it? You do the things you don't want to do. 
and you don't do the things you want to do. We're enslaved to our flesh. We're slaves. And we desperately want freedom. Well, friends, guess what? We need a redeemer, someone to buy us and to deliver us from slavery into freedom. And we have that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And friends, we need to be reconciled to God. We were made to be in his presence. And yet sin introduced alienation. We are separated. There is a gulf. There is a gap between us and God. And we need someone to bring us together. And that someone is Jesus, our mediator who makes peace, who, bring, who is fully God, fully man, and brings us back in unity. And you and I have peace, or the Hebrews would call shalom. This not just an absence of suffering, but a presence of flourishing. Friends, this is the good news, and it is required of us to receive this news and not hold it in, but to share it with the world. How do we do that? Well, in the Old Testament, the law was designed for mission, but in the New our lives are designed for mission. Paul says we carry around the aroma of Christ. Our hope is just built different. A week ago yesterday, one of my best friends, uh, Ryan Gallippo, he passed away from sarcoma, cancer, and uh, he was only 31 years old, and so we flew to California just for the day, and I, was just, I just cried the whole time. And, um, but his mom came up at the very end, sharing the story about seeing Ryan grow up. But I'll never forget how she ended it. It was amazing. Her, she wasn't mad. She wasn't angry. She was at peace. And she ended it going, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Now that's easy to say on a typical Sunday morning. How can you say that at your son's funeral? grace and presence of God. This is good news. Our life shares that. And this mission that we're designed to share is for the whole world. Revelation 7 verse 9, it says, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This is talking about the end of all things. But here's the thing, y'all. I know we want Christ to come back. We really do. But according to my, my Bible, He ain't coming back until there's a representative from every tribe, tongue, and language. And according to our data, there are still people group, people groups, tribes who have never heard of the name of Jesus. So friends, you and I have work to do. There is a lot to be done to fulfill the Great Commission, but it can be done. Some of the data is pretty overwhelming, and I'm grateful for, for the IMB even to be present here, and they're in the hall to, to answer any questions you have, but there's only three missionaries for every one million Muslims. I don't care how good of a missionary they are. That's a, that's a pretty difficult task. They did math even more. They said there's one missionary for every 306,000 Muslims. What's been amazing is I hear story after story of God actually leading Muslims to Christ before any missionary gets there. God's been talking to them in their dreams. And so there's missionaries who have stories. They go to these groups, and they're saying, am I here to bring Jesus? And they're like, we've heard of that Jesus. We've been dreaming about him, and he's been talking to us. Tell us more. See, God, man, if we don't do it, the stones will cry out, right? The dreams, God loves the world. And what a joy to be a part of it, to be sent. 
Uh, There's one missionary for every 179,000 Hindus, and that population is increasing more and more by the day. There's only one missionary for every 17,000 unreached tribes. Friends, there is work to be done. We planted in Phoenix, Arizona because the need is great. There is one SBC church, Southern Baptist, for every 20,000 people. There'll be very large churches if we figure that out. What we really have, though, is a huge spirit of apathy in our area. Even those who are Christians, they kind of like, they just think they nailed it, the Christian life if they just show up once a month. Like, we've really been struggling like, to send people on mission because there's just this apathy of, I'm, I'm good. There's also a spirit of consumerism in our area. A lot of people are moving from other states coming here, and they just want to be fed in a consumeristic way, and so we, we have difficulty. Friends, it's, you can't reach a consumer crowd with a junior high cafeteria, but man, we can still do some amazing gospel work there, and we are. Arizona is a beautiful place to share the gospel. I share with people all the time. It's so easy to bring up hell in the middle of July, you know. You feel this? Imagine that for eternity. Yeah, come to church. But here's what we're figuring out. The Old Testament method of come and see isn't working. We have church after church plant that have tried to plant in Phoenix. What they've tried to do is use that come and see model. Get a bunch of money together. Get a great band. Lights, all the, I'm not against any of these things. And then we just send out flyers. You know what we have found? Nobody comes. And it's really embarrassing. This strategy is based off this assumption that our culture loves the Bible, that our culture trusts the Bible, that our culture wants the church. We're in an area in Phoenix where when bad, when suffering knocks on their door, they are not thinking, where's the nearest church? Where's the nearest pastor? And so we've had to change our strategy. We launched in a movie theater. We thought that was so cool. Nobody else thought it was that cool. We did a really cool YouTube ad. Nobody really came. Why? Come and see doesn't work. As a result, in the past decade, roughly 70% of church plants in Phoenix have died. When we launched, we had around seven other people who launched with us. We're the only one left. That's why I'm really grateful you guys continue to support us. Thank you. It's typical that we only support within the first three years of a church plant. Typically, though, most church plants in Phoenix die at the third year anniversary because that's when the funding is gone. So thank you for your support. But the area is tough. Man, I need to be quick. I see that timer. Now, John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York City, and he explained there's three different levels of hostility towards Christians in America. And I wonder what our, your area is. The first one is a green light culture. This area means no hostility towards Christians at all. Christianity is seen as a positive contribution to society. Not everyone may par- participate, but they're thankful that a ch- the church is there. The second is a yellow light culture. This is where everybody in the city thinks the church is weird, but at least it's not harmful. It's great that those people find joy in a church. Just please don't invite me to your Easter service. It's great as long as those Christians don't get too public about their faith. Red light culture, the third, is the church isn't just weird. The church is harmful. Christian stance on things like sexuality and morality are destructive. Private faith isn't enough. It needs to be eradicated altogether. Pastors are bad people. They should never be trusted, and they always are power-hungry, and they're very manipulative. That's a red-light culture. We are predominantly still a yellow-light culture, but we are quickly trending towards the red in our area. I cannot bring up that I'm a pastor. My grandfather, 
I'm fourth generation Southern Baptist pastor. My grandfather was a pastor in Tennessee. He'd tell people he's a pastor, he'd get free food. I tell people I'm a pastor, I get spit in my food. I know there's just a difference. It wasn't funny? Okay. Now, <laughs> here's what we're learning though. Here's what we're learning. Here's the trick. Your neighbors will expect your hostility until they experience your hospitality. They don't feel hospitality from an ad from a video or whatever, but they experience the presence of God when our people get enough nerve to knock on the door and invite them over. We have our neighbor, Mike, who was turned off when I was a pastor. The first time I told him, he just literally just stopped talking and left. And we thought, that's awkward. Uh, but thankfully, he's a mechanic. And so I keep breaking my truck down so he can help. <laughs> and we have conversations and we've invited them over for dinner. And more and more now, he's just waiting for me to pull in, and we chat. See, what did Jesus do when he was on earth? He advanced the mission of God one meal at a time. He didn't make demonstration out of sinners. No, Jesus made dinner for sinners, and that's what you and I are called to do as well. I can't get enough of Hebrews 13 too. It says, don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without even knowing it. What's that saying? There is something sacred that happens when we open up our hearts by putting out the plates. This is hard for my family because my wife's favorite three words are out to eat. <laughs> but we are learning. There's a thing called DoorDash, right? We can cater, whatever. Let's bring people over and be hospitable. And I know this is Southern hospitality. And so you're like, we done dare did that. But let me give you a challenge. One, are you inviting the neighbor that no one else invites? Are you inviting the neighbor that can't invite you back? Are you inviting the neighbor that everyone labels? And not only that, maybe you relate to the pressure of having people over for dinner, but it's hard to bring up Jesus. It's hard to close the deal. I had a, a member, we, like this is a big emphasis at our church, to make meals, to bring people over for dinner and just see what the grace of God can do. And he, and he was like, yeah, I come up with the rule. You don't convert, no dessert. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not it. You missed it, okay? He's like, but my dessert's good, so it'll, no, 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 no. But here's what's put us at ease. And I tell my wife this every time before we open the door to bring somebody in. Outcomes are none of our business, but the outcast is. The fact that the outcast is in my home. I've done my job. And all I can do is witness to what God has done in my life and allow God to do his salvific work in their heart. Allow him. Make space for the grace of God. Allow him to do what only he can do. But what I can do is to care for the least of these. To bring people over. And you know why I do that? Because there was a time when I wasn't invited to the table. Because of my sin, because of my corruption and filth, I was outside of the feast of God. And yet Jesus in his kindness came down to earth, lived the perfect life, died for my sin, rose again in victory, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's extended the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the ultimate feast with God for eternity to you and to me. And because of that invitation, I can't help but say, you're invited as well. Come to the feast. And we believe every time we feast together, 
It's a foretaste of the kingdom of God for eternity. So I just want to ask you as we close, who is your neighbor that you haven't invited? Are you worried too much about the outcome? Where is God calling you to next? Because there are way too many people in this community as well that don't even know that they're invited to the feast. Let's bring them in. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we are a part of your feast. God, although we didn't deserve it, we don't earn it. Jesus, you made a way for us. Oh God, thank you for this church and thank you for the way the mission is on the forefront of all they do. So God, I just feel led to pray for favor on Green Hill Church. Favor as they keep the main thing, the main thing. God, I pray that ah, so many families would be blessed through the ministry of Green Hill, both here and around the world. But God, may we be doers of the word. And so God, may we leave here taking the challenge. I'm going to make dinner for the sinner. I'm going to invite the neighbor that nobody likes. I'm going to give God an opportunity, Hebrews 13, for something sacred to happen as we put out the plates and open up our hearts. God, would you give us the boldness to meet somebody new? Give us the boldness to share our own story of God's grace in our life. It may result in conversions and baptisms and celebrations of what you've done and what you've continued to do throughout history, and that's drawing all the nations to yourself for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.